The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Uh, well, if you want to open your Bibles to Esther chapter four, we're going to be in our uh, we're going to be there this week in our Esther series. We are uh, being week four. We are now halfway through our series in Esther. And, and just to give you a, a bit of a recap of, of where we've been and, and the story of Esther, Esther was one of God's people. She was one of the Jewish people who had been uh, with her family, been taken into exile. And uh, while she was in exile, she was made queen to King Ahasuerus, the king of Persia. Now, at this point of the story, and we, we covered this last week, at this point of the story, she's been queen for about five years now at this point, and her identity as a Jew, as, as one of God's people, is completely unknown, except for her and her cousin Mordecai, and he actually told her to keep it quiet, to keep it, to keep it secret. Um, so not even her husband, the king of Persia, knew that she was a Jew. Now... To fill you in on what we covered last week, Mordecai, her cousin, uh, actually offended one of the highest, if not the second highest ranked official, behind just second to the king only. He offended this guy Haman by not bowing down to Haman when everybody else would. And so Haman, in response to that, he convinced the king to sign an order, an, an edict, to, to kill and annihilate and destroy all of the Jews within the vast Persian Empire. So that's not just in, in Susa, where this story is set. It's throughout all of, of the Persian Empire, all the, the 127 provinces of the Persian Empire, uh, all the Jews throughout that, making it legal on a particular day in 11 months' time to, to destroy your Jewish neighbors, to kill your Jewish neighbors, and take all their things. So that got signed into place last week, and the way that chapter 3 ends was that the whole city of Susa was thrown into confusion while Haman and Ahasuerus sat down to drink. What Haman didn't count on, though, was that Mordecai's God and the old stories of Mordecai's God, how this God parted the Red Sea, how this guy rescued Israel out of slavery, how, how this God uh, brought Israel into the, into, the, into the promised land and virtually handed Canaan over to them. What he didn't count on was that those stories were actually true. He didn't count on the fact that, that Mordecai's God, his, his power extended even over the Persian Empire, and that this God who was sovereign, even down to the roll of the dice, was going to save his people through Haman's plan to destroy his people. So that's where we've been in the story so far. Let's, let's spend some time in prayer, and then we'll get into it. Father, we thank you that your word is, is sharper than a two-edged sword, and it penetrates down into the deepest marrow of our beings, Lord. And we ask, Lord, as we spend this time in your word, that, that you would be glorified in this. Jesus, we ask you would teach us this morning. We would know that as we read the Bible this morning, that this is your word. It's how you've decided to reveal yourself to us, to, to make yourself known to us, Lord. And so we ask, Father, that as we spend this time together that you would make yourself known to us. 
that we would get a, a glimpse and a, a taste again, Lord, of how beautiful and wonderful you truly are. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. Have you ever found yourself saying, I didn't sign up for this? It might have been in a job where you were required to do something that you felt was, was overstepping the boundary, where you didn't want to do that. And you thought to yourself, I didn't sign up for this. A number of years ago, I was working as a, as a cleaner in the school, and I clean, came to clean the toilets, and there was a mess in the toilets that I'll just say was messier than you can ever imagine. Like It was absolutely horrible, and it was done with the seat down, and it was terrible. And I looked at it, and I thought to myself, I didn't sign up for this. Like this was, I, this was not in the, I didn't think that this could be that bad. Or maybe you've had a, a moment where someone who you know, they weren't, they weren't treating you the way that you felt that you ought to be treated, and you thought to yourself, you know, I didn't sign up for this. Or maybe it's that as hostility and persecution arises towards, towards those of faith, towards people who believe and are faithful in Jesus, you're, you're thinking to yourself, I didn't sign up for this. Well, in our text today, we're going to see Esther saying something very close to, I didn't sign up for this. So like we've been doing, we're just going to walk through this chapter. Beginning in verse 1, it says, when Mordecai learned all that had occurred, that's, that's the edict, that's the order that Haman had written and gotten the king to sign, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went into the middle of the city and cried loudly and bitterly. He went only as far as the king's gate, since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate. There was great mourning amongst the Jewish people, in every province where the king's command and edict reached. They fasted, wept, and lamented, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. This practice of tearing your clothes, putting on sackcloth, like itchy, itchy fibered clothing, and putting ashes on your head, that was widespread in the ancient world. Today, when, when tragedy strikes, we would expect that somebody would wear black to a funeral, and it's, it's kind of the same, although it's just a lot more public and a lot more, it's, it's a lot more dramatic. It wasn't just reserved for death, it was when you were in despair and in agony. And the threefold mention of this in, in each of, the three, of these first three verses, that should tell us, this is a big thing, this is a significant thing. This wasn't just Mordecai feeling a bit down in the dumps and you know, got a case of the Mondays. This was serious. He was publicly weeping loudly and bitterly. This edict had been felt. It, it, its effects had reverberated throughout the empire. And, and this news of what Mordecai was doing, what her people were doing, it reaches Esther. It says in verse 4 that Esther's female servants and her eunuchs came and reported the news to her, and the queen was overcome with fear. She sent clothes for Mordecai to wear so that he would take off his sackcloth, but he did not accept them. It doesn't seem so much that she is just embarrassed by him. It doesn't seem so much that she's saying, hey, Mordecai, put some clothes on. Can you just control yourself? This is really quite embarrassing. It really comes out of a deep sense of concern that she has for him, that something has happened that is making Mordecai act like this. And we might sense from the language that it's starting to dawn on Esther 
something big has happened. Something big is going down. And her world was about to be turned upside down. Life for Esther was never going to be the same again. Verse 5. Esther summoned Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who attended her and dispatched him to Mordecai to learn what he was doing and why. And then what we get then for the rest of chapter 4 is basically a sum of the correspondence between Esther and Mordecai through this guy Hathach. They, they couldn't see each other because uh, Mordecai wasn't allowed to enter the palace. He wasn't allowed to enter in wearing sackcloth and ashes. So see, they had to communicate through this, through this, communicate, through this messenger, Hathach. And within this correspondence, we get not one, but two of the more famous lines from the story of Esther. So let's look at their messages uh, to one another. It says in verse 6, So Hathach went out to Mordecai in the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened, as well as the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay the royal treasury for the slaughter of the Jews. So he tells Hathach, he tells Hathach probably everything, including probably the part that, that Mordecai himself played in not bowing down to Haman, saying, hey, this is what's happened. I didn't bow down to Haman, and this is how this has played out. And not only that, but Mordecai has learned, I'm not sure if this was a secret or public knowledge, but Mordecai has learned the exact amount of money that Haman has, has paid into the royal treasury to ensure that this, this, uh, this edict goes ahead. The language is emphatic and it draws attention to the amount given. Mordecai wants Esther to know that Haman is the one who's behind all this. Now, it's just speculation, but it could be, that could be the case because Esther's got to watch her back now around this guy, Haman. He's got exclusive access to the king, and if, if she starts to, to seek access to the king through Haman, then Haman could be the one that blocks this. It says in verse 8 that Mordecai also gave her a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, ordering their destruction so that Hathach might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and command her to approach the king Implore his favor and plead with him personally for her people. Hathach came and repeated Mordecai's response to her. So by sending her a copy of the decree, there could be no doubt left for Esther that this was serious. This was serious and it needed to be taken seriously. And it's in this message back to Esther that the full scope of what her cousin is asking her to do, the full scope of this comes into view. Let's consider the, the things that Mordecai says to Esther, commands her to do. Firstly, he says, approach the king. Now, we might not get the significance of that yet, but we will in a few moments. See, there existed a law that no one, no, no man, no woman could approach the king, not even the queen herself, could approach the king uninvited. If you wanted to speak to the king, you had to wait until he invited you to come to him. And if you went to him, if you approached the throne without, without an invitation, you ran the risk of being killed. So the way that it would work is that if you approached the king and he, extended, he, he, he received you, he accepted you, he would extend his gold scepter to you, which meant you were safe and you were free to plead your business to the king. However, however if he did nothing then you would be taken away and killed. So the first, the first command, the first uh, instruction from Mordecai to Esther, approach the king, that was already serious. It, was, it could result in Esther's death. 
The second instruction was to implore his favor. Not only was she good to go to the king uninvited, but to also ask him a favor. So if, this, if the first instruction was risky, this one is crazy. Imagine approaching someone who, who held that kind of power, who could, who could destroy you by, by not doing anything. He could just sit, sit there and do nothing, and you would be killed for that. And she's not being asked just, just to go to him, but to actually ask a favor. That's the significance of what is going on here. That's, the state, that's how high the stakes were for Esther. Then the third instruction was to plead with him personally for her people. This was by far the riskiest thing that she could have done. To plead with him would be to ask him to reverse a decision that he had already made. Now, because uh, the, the kings were held in such high esteem, their, their word and their will was considered the, the, equal to the word and the will of the, of the gods, it was virtually impossible within, within this empire to reverse an order of the king because that would, that would dissolve, that would uh, disintegrate the authority that the king had if he, if he could go back on his word. If, if you can... If you've read through the book, of, the book of Daniel, it's a similar kind of thing that happened when Daniel was sentenced to the lion den. There, lion's den. There it was King Darius, and he was tricked into making this order to make sure that nobody could, could pray to anybody except to him. And Daniel was faithful to God, got sentenced to the lion's den, and the king was stricken. He loved Daniel, and he stayed up all night seeking loopholes, trying to find some kind of precedent to, to get Daniel off, the, off his own order. But he couldn't do it. The, the king's word was final. This could not be undone. It could not be reversed. And this is what Esther's been asked to go in and try and compel the king to reverse, to reverse his word. And what's more, she was being asked to do this personally. She was being asked to put her reputation on the line with him, to plead with him personally for her people, would mean that she would have to break her silence. She would have to tell the king that she was in fact a Jew, one of the exiles. She had to now identify with God's people. This was a suicide mission. This was like Maverick getting into the F-14 behind enemy lines and taking out not two, but three fifth-generation fighters in what is easily the greatest movie of all time. The gravity and the weight of, of all that Mordecai was commanding Esther certainly weighed heavy on her, as I'm sure it would have weighed heavily on us. This is a big thing she's being asked to do. And this is where we begin to see Esther say something close to, I didn't sign up for this. Her response to Mordecai reveals how divided she was. Verse 10, Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to tell Mordecai, all the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned, the death penalty, unless the king extends the gold scepter, allowing that person to live. I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. So can you sense Esther's reluctance there? She's throwing up these reasons, hey, you can't ask me to do this, I'll get killed for this. It's understandable. It's understandable, right? She tells Mordecai, what you're asking me to do is not just huge, it's impossible. I could die for this. 
I could lose my life, and there's hardly a chance that I'll be successful. I didn't sign up for this. And this is what we questioned a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at uh, our introduction to Esther in chapter 2, that we questioned whether she actually was the hero of the story that she becomes in the end. Did the the bravery that Esther possesses at the end of chapter 4, did she have that at the beginning of chapter 2? And I don't think she does. I, I think that she was brought up in a family that chose Babylon over Jerusalem, and she's found safety in the palace of the Persian king rather than safety in the will and the city of her sovereign God. And now her life is at risk. Everything is at risk. And this is why Esther's story makes faithfulness to God so accessible for us. Esther was scared to do what she was being asked to do, what she was being asked to do. And I want us to think about how we feel about being called to do what we've been called to do, to, to be faithful to Jesus in a world of hostility. How do we feel about that? Is there hesitation in us? Is there trepidation in us? Is there fear? And I really hope we hear this well and it serves us well to be reminded that the way that God works through his people seems to be not so much about him choosing brave people and strong people and powerful people and faithful people to accomplish his ends, but rather choosing the nobodies and the cowards who who stuff up who need redos over and over again, who need the grace of God. Jesus said, I came to call the sick, not the healthy. Why? Because that's what brings him glory. Esther's Esther's hesitation here is more forensic evidence that God is at work. This story is not the story of a, of a woman who, who stood alone in the face of a vast and powerful empire. It's the story of God moving his people where he wants them for their deliverance and for his glory. So Mordecai gets Esther's message and he sends back a threefold reply. This can't have been easy to read, it can't have been easy to hear, it can't have been easy to send either. Verse 13, Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, Don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. I mean, that's a harsh word, right? The edict is far too thorough for that. And your position in the palace and the servants, all your servants and the eunuchs and on the walls of the palace, they will not be able to protect you. The truth of your identity is going to come out and the palace walls won't keep you safe. This is challenging, right? How often do we think that silence and hiding will give us the safety that we need? A good question we could ask ourselves is, do I have a safety net that isn't Christ Jesus? Verse 14, the second thing he says back to her, if you keep silence at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's family will be destroyed. This is perhaps the closest we come in this book to an explicit mention of God. Mordecai's conviction is that the God of Israel who takes care of his people is going to still take care of his people. It's going to continue regardless of whether it it involves Esther or not. God is going to win this. 
He is not going to permit the annihilation of his people. Deliverance is going to come. God will not be stopped. His covenant promises are forever. And we need to hear again that God's kingdom will prevail. God is king and no throne can endure against him. Jesus is on the throne and nothing can remove him from that. God's kingdom will stand at the grave of every other kingdom that mankind has established. We need to hear that. As we look at the news of what's going on around the world and we we see the warnings, we see what's happening, we need to know that though the nations rage and though kingdoms rise and fall, there is still one king who reigns over all. Remember that. Mordecai is saying God's going to win here. And Esther, you can either be on his team or not. You can either be involved with this or not. And then his message continues with what is perhaps the most famous verse from all of Esther. Who knows, he says. Who knows, perhaps. Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Maybe, Esther, this is the exact reason why you became queen. Maybe this moment is the exact reason why you're here. And if God is sovereign there, then God is sovereign here for us too. You see, God sends his people into the world to make disciples. If you're a Christian, then you are a disciple maker and you've been given the most important commission of your life, which is to go and make disciples, help people, encourage people. Make disciples means helping people, encouraging people to become more and more like Jesus. There is simply nothing more important that we could be doing with our time. And the reason why God put Esther in that palace, and not you or I there, is because God wanted Esther in that palace and not you and I. And the reason why God has put you and I into the streets that we live in and not Esther is because God wants us to be living in those streets and not Esther. He put Esther where he wanted Esther and he put you and I where he put you and I. We, we, we would do well to think about our streets and our shops and our workplaces and our schools and our families and our clinics and our cafes and, and everywhere else that we go in such a way as that. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to the Sunshine Coast for such a time as this. Perhaps you have come to that cafe for such a time as this, or this school, or this friendship group, or that street, or whatever it is, maybe actually this is the exact reason why you're here. Not so much because of family, not so much because of your career, not so much because of all these other things, but because God is building his kingdom, one disciple at a time, and he sent you there to make disciples. So Hathach carries this message back to Esther, who sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night and day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. Fasting is heavily associated with prayer and petitioning God, so we can again see that this author is at at pains to not mention God. It actually feels like it would be far easier just to say, God, for the sake of the story, but, but once again we're seeing that God remains unseen. And I want this to stand out for us. 
We, we said this a few times. Esther is the only book in the Bible where God is not mentioned, and that's by design. So often we think to ourselves, if only God would show up like a bolt of, blood, bolt of lightning out of blue sky. If only Jesus was here bodily with us right now, then he, all this would be smoothed out. All my problems would go away. We don't have a burning bush like Moses. We don't have a floating axe head like Elisha. We don't have endless baskets of fish and bread like Peter. Our situation seems a lot like Esther's, where God is unseen, where his works seem to be hidden, and where we can, think, we can sometimes think of his rule as something of a bygone era. But his power and his strength and his sovereignty are by no means diminished. We have God with us by his Holy Spirit with us. And if Jesus is to be believed in John 16, then we have it better having the Holy Spirit with us. <clears throat> we have God with us by his Spirit. Always. We have his revelation to us through his word, and we have knowledge of his sovereignty over all things. And this is why Esther's story is so helpful to us. Listen to the final part of her message to Mordecai. She says, I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. Then pay attention to this. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and did everything that Esther has commanded him. And with that, we see a massive change in Esther's resolve. She went from, I didn't sign up to this, I didn't sign up for this too. If I perish, I perish. Here's the thing. I think it's too strong to say that Esther was the hero from day dot. The text doesn't allow us to think this way. It's also too strong to say that she was just trying to save her own skin. I just don't think this, the text allows that. What we have is one of God's people in a difficult and compromised position, trying to work out what it means to be one of his people in a world of hostility. And this is why Esther makes usefulness in God's kingdom just so accessible to us. When we go into the world to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim God as king, to proclaim grace for sinners and life through Jesus Christ alone. We, grow, we go into a world that has largely rejected Jesus, Jesus without fully understanding what the message of the cross is. It's helpful for us to think of, of our world as being post-Christian in culture, but pre-Christian in understanding. In other words, the world seems to have rejected this, the message of the gospel. The world seems to have rejected what Christianity is without fully understanding exactly what grace is and how good the good news is. A friend of mine once put it like this. Imagine that a mum and dad decided uh, to, to let their son have ice cream. And uh, this son had never had ice cream before and said, we're going get, to get you some ice cream. It's fantastic and they go and get some ice cream for him. But instead of getting ice cream from the freezer, they got moldy bread. And they give it to the son, and the son eats this moldy bread. It's gross, disgusting. I don't like ice cream. I don't get what the fuss is all about. He's unimpressed, and he resolves, I'm never going to eat ice cream again. Years later, the ice cream, ice cream truck goes down the street. 
And all the other kids come running out to the, to the ice cream truck, screaming, ice cream, ice cream. And he thinks, what's the big deal? Isn't that disgusting? But then he tries some, actually tries some, and discovers it to be better than what he was once led to believe. So the gospel is ice cream. It's the best. It's wonderful. It's the best news ever, and the vast majority of people today have rejected it without actually knowing how good it is. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you might be thinking to yourself, Christianity is kind of like moldy bread, based on what I've been led to believe. You might think it be to be oppressive and uncompassionate. You might think of it as being regressive and even dangerous for people. But the truth of the message of the gospel is that life, true life, is only possible through Jesus Christ. Truth is found only in him. And there is an, there is an ocean of swim, uh, sorry, ocean of grace waiting for us to swim in it. And it's the best thing that could ever happen for us when God is in charge. God is the only way that we can have any kind of meaning in this life. The, 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 the good news of the gospel is that by Jesus Christ alone is the only way. He's the only way that we can have purpose, real purpose, and real meaning in life. If, if you're seeking meaning from your sexuality or your sexual identity, you're seeking meaning from something that was never meant to define you. If your identity is caught up in the stuff that you own and the lifestyle that you live, you are seeking depth from puddles. If you want purpose and fulfillment from your career or the kind of status that you have amongst others, then you're looking for meaning from something that was never meant to give you life. And when we go into the world with the good news of Jesus, we're going with the best news ever. That meaning and purpose truly is possible for us, truly is attainable, and is found in Jesus Christ alone. Life is found in the one who gave up his life for us. Meaning is found in the one who created the world. Purpose is found in the one who redefines our future. You see, the greatest problem that each of us has, the most significant, massive problem that each one of us has, is the sin that separates our hearts. It's in our hearts that has separated us from God. We have rebelled against the king and so deserve his punishment. And there is no hope uh, for any, in any one of us to change our fate. There is no amount of good that we can do to redeem ourselves. But we are not without hope because the king sent his son to take our punishment so that the infinite chasm between us and God could be bridged and we could be reconciled to God forever. And if we can be honest, the message of the gospel that God is, in king, that God is king and he ought to be in charge that goes against everything that is intuitive to us. You see, the message of the world is that our problems exist outside of us and salvation lies within. But the message of the, and we're baptized into that, into that message every single day. The message of, of Jesus is that actually our problems lie within us and, and salvation comes from someone who is not us. Salvation comes from Jesus Christ. He died for our sins and the message, that message is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And we might, like Esther, balk 
at the prospect of suffering for Jesus. We might think through all that has been risked by being faithful to God and identifying as one of his people, and we might think to ourselves, I didn't sign up for this. But make no mistake, this is exactly what it means to follow Jesus. The scriptures assume suffering. It assumes that God's people are going to endure persecution. In fact, I think we could go so far as to say that the Bible makes more sense in a world that is hostile to God's people than a world that is friendly to God's people. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. John said, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Peter said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were, ha- something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If we remain faithful to Jesus, we will find the world to be less and less accommodating to us. And, and that's a good thing. What he has taught us, what Jesus has taught us and demonstrated to us will only make more sense to us. And rest assured that there will come a day where Jesus will return and he will be glorified and we will join him in that glorification and a lifetime of suffering and trials and persecution will be worth it within an instant of seeing Jesus in his stunning and dazzling beauty. So how do we get there? How do we go from, I didn't sign up for this, to, if I perish, I perish? Well, we could maybe consider Mordecai's words there as being something that we could take note of. Going back to verse 13, he says to Esther, Don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. In other words, your safety is not guaranteed. If we can just be honest about this, this is exactly what Christians sign up for when we follow Jesus. If you became a Christian on on the pretense that life is going to be wonderful and everything's going to be great, then I'm sorry who sold that to you, but it's just not true. He says in verse 14, If you keep silence at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. In other words, God's going to win. God is going to win. God's mission plan for the world to save people from their sins and bring them into his kingdom is going to win out. And in that sense, the part that we play, though tiny, is for God's victory. Then he says, who knows, perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. In other words, maybe this is exactly why you're here right now. And there's nothing more important in your life than this. And if we can plant that deep in our hearts and water that, we'll see courage and bravery grow within us. We'll be able to shrug off persecution and suffering and the prospect of death even for the sake of Jesus. This seems to be what took hold of Esther. And I would move to suggest that what we've actually seen in Esther in chapter 4 is the opposite of what we saw was happening for Haman in chapter 3. So if you were here last week, we we looked at Haman's problem that what happened for him was that he he drifted too close to the center of his universe and everybody had to be on board the Haman train, otherwise they should be disposed of. He was more important than anything else. 
And here in chapter 4, we're seeing Esther drift away from the center of the universe. You can't say, if I perish, I perish, if you're at the center of the universe. And the truth is that we will find it really hard to have that kind of gospel courage in this world of hostility if we are at the center of the universe and all we can think about is ourselves. But if Jesus occupied that central point of our universe, if he was on the throne of our lives and we could not take our eyes off him, then bravery would simply be a matter of looking at Jesus and beholding his glory. Courage would be the simple practice of knowing that Jesus is central to our lives and we have everything we need, to have, we need in him, knowing that we have lost nothing but gained everything in following him and whatever we risk in following Jesus, he cannot be taken away from us. His love for us, his grace for us, and our salvation are not at risk when we, when we identify with him rather than the world around us. How do we, like Esther, have that kind of resolve, grow in that kind of resolve to say, listen, I, I actually, if I perish, I perish. Like if I lose my life in following Jesus, if I lose my dignity, if I lose my, my reputation, if I lose my career, if I lose anything in following Jesus, I've lost nothing, but I've got everything in him. How, how do we get there? Keep Christ at the center of your life, in the center of your universe. Keep your eyes on him. Let the vision of him, let him fill the spectrum of your vision and everything that is gained in him and all the things that we once held dear will fade away beside his glory. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.